This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Since the killing of George Floyd by police officers in May, communities and industries around the world have had to ask and answer questions about how to eradicate racism in big and small ways. The NWSL and women's soccer have not been exempt from those conversations. And over the course of the last six months, we have seen many put in the effort to end racism. Joining me for a conversation today on the Equalizer podcast are O.L. Reigns, Jasmine Spencer, Brown women's soccer head coach, Kia McNeil, and journalist Erica Ayala for a multifaceted conversation about where women's soccer is and where it needs to be in the fight to end racism. Thank you all very much for joining me today. I really, really appreciate it. So, Thank you. Good to, have, good to be here. So one of the things that I have been thinking about a lot is since we're now about six months removed from it, how the women's soccer space has changed for you, if it's changed at all. And Jasmine, I know you were part of a team, OL Reign, that at least from an outsider perspective, really wanted to confront these issues head on, especially at the beginning of the Challenge Cup. So I wanted to hear from your perspective how you think maybe the entire, or at least from your point of view, your team or the women's soccer community has grown in the last six months. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that um, I've noticed is just the realization um, that racism does exist um, in the sport and also uh, that the representation for uh specifically women of color in the sport um, has been lacking up until now. I think that many of us women of color have tried to advocate for black and brown communities and try to get um, younger athletes interested in the sport. And it seems like now, um, given the current climate, that people are interested in learning and educating themselves and working um, with us to try and achieve that. Um, Kia, same question for you. And obviously you can think about it, not just as a former player, but as a coach too. Yeah, I think that um, obviously with everything specifically that went on this summer with uh, George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor, you know, these are things that in the black community have been going on for, for years, decades, hundreds of years. And obviously, I think, I think in some ways, to, to some extent, the pandemic allowed us to really hyper focus on some of these issues that were going on around the country as they relate to racism. And, um, you know, conversations that 
you know, maybe in the past were deemed as uh, not p- politically correct or, you know, kind of uh, subjects that you might um, avoid, whether it's inadvertent or, or, or blatantly try to avoid, you know, you, there, was no, there was no dodging it this summer. You know, I, I remember, uh, you know, with, with everything that was going on, um, even myself personally, I had to take a break from social media, had to take a break from, you know, watching the news um, and, and kind of just disconnected for a weekend. But in that time of reflection, I, I said to myself, well, Kia, you have one of the most diverse teams, you know, in the Ivy League and potentially in the country. So if you're feeling this way as a person of color, you know, you need to have these conversations with your team too. And not not just for the people of color, but for everybody on the team to, to hear and to talk about. So I think the great thing that happened this this year and this specifically this summer where it was it allowed a safe space to have these conversations and um for you know, black athletes to uh, share their experiences of different things that are happened and, um, and, and just, just allow our white counterparts to listen a little bit. You know, I think sometimes in the past, they're, they've always been the one to talk and talk about their experience, but it, it was nice to just have the mic for a second, so to speak, and, and share our experiences too, and just have them listen to that. Cause I, I don't expect them to know what it's like to be a black person. Cause you're, you're not, I don't know what it's like to be a white person, but for them to take the time to really listen and hear our stories and hear um, some of our experiences, I think that's important. And I think that's a huge way of, um, you know, a huge way that our, our white allies can learn. So. And Erica, before I throw it to you, I'm very curious about your perspective, not just as somebody who's watching this unfold and thinking about it from the perspective of a journalist, but also probably someone who's watching different things unfold and conversations happen inside media circles as well. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I suppose I'll start with how I I saw things unfold from the media, because I think that's probably the ways that um, perhaps surprised me the most. Um, And I noticed that, and to Coach McNeil's point, this is nothing new as someone who identifies as black Latina. I mean, this is not, you know, what we saw this summer, unfortunately, very unfortunately is not new, but what was different was the reaction uh, to uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor very specifically, because unfortunately also those weren't the only names that we could list from this year alone. Um, and, And I always just as a journalist and also as someone who's worked professionally as an advocate, as a community advocate, I always wonder what um, story creates momentum and, and those that don't. Um, and, and I don't really know. I'm still trying to, I guess, figure, figure all of that out. But I think from a media perspective, colleagues that were not usually um, – having these conversations were, were doing that, not just in the context of their work because athletes they were covering were speaking about this, but I had colleagues reach out to me and ask me questions or have me recount something that we experienced together. And almost, um, 
you know, feel apologetic for some of the things that they did or didn't do in the moment when I would, would bring things to a media scrum or would write certain stories or even just in casual conversation. So that's been very interesting. Um, there's a part of me that is excited and hopeful about that. But if I'm being honest, there's also a part of me that's extremely exhausted by that. Um, and, and, and there's a part of me that works hard not to get a little bit frustrated by that because conversations about um, diversity, inclusion, race, racism, um, representation are things that I've always brought to the sports space. So it's, it's a very unique position to be in more often than not. I'm hopeful. Um, but there are a lot of emotions that, that come from everything that we've seen in the last several months. Jasmine, going back to you, I remember right, uh, right before you and the OL rain got, uh, uh, got on the field for the, for your first team at the challenge cup, you, the team put out this very powerful and impactful video about, not just systemic racism, but how it works to afford privileges to people who aren't people of color mostly. And I was, I wanted to know from your point of view, what putting that video together was like. Yeah, it was, I mean, kind of what Erica was just alluding to. It was a lot, it was a lot of different emotions and, something that uh, I've been, I guess, hesitant in really sharing because it's, it was very intimate to the team and the group of us that experienced it together. Um, but what I will say is at the time, uh, you know, there was a lot of heightened awareness around what was going on um, and a lot of people flocking to it. And it was very hard to tell who was just being performative and kind of jumping on the bandwagon of like, oh, like I'm going to use my platform because this is something that's trendy right now. And it was hard to decipher from those people and the people who genuinely um, expressed care and concern and want to educate and create a better system. And so we as a organization um, decided that we wanted to put something out that was authentic and meaningful and not kind of just cookie cutter. Like, yes, we stand with the black lives matter movement and, and all the advocates in elevating the black communities and trying to create a better future. And the best way that we thought that we could do that was by showing how all of us on this team, yes, we're all professional athletes. Yes. We're all extraordinary women, but because of systemic racism, some of us have been afforded other privileges in our path here. And I think, um, you know, we were all excited about the idea, but it wasn't until we lined up on the, on the field together and executed the exercise that we really were hit by, you know, how systemic racism has it affected all of us in this country. I mean, uh, I think there were eight, of us women of color on the team at the time. And we all came up with the questions collectively. And so we were aware of what, where we were going to fall in the, the line, but I walked next to Michelle Betos, who I've known since I was 15. We come from very similar um, backgrounds and upbringings and she's, 
you know, one of my best friends in real life, not just on the team and to watch her start to pull away from me. Like I just got goosebumps thinking of it. Like it's real, you know, and, and that's what the video, the point of the video was, but, you know, going through the motions and really creating it was, it was surreal for all of us. And has it been easier to figure out who, who was being performative and who wasn't after the fact? I don't think so. Um, It's hard, but I think something that, you know, I've spoke to my parents a lot about because, you know, they grew up through the civil rights movement and, and they said in their lifetime, they've never seen this much support from non people like persons of color. I think that something that I've tried to pull away from that is the fact that this moment is uh, impactful and we might not ever get this much support and assistance. And so regardless of the intention, I've tried to just um, use the momentum and the elevation that my personal platform has received to continue to educate um, and speak on, you know, the injustices that have been going on in the Black community. Um, and as you were speaking about that, it made me think of a question that actually any of you could answer, but is it difficult really to assume a position where you have to be explaining things that for you maybe shouldn't have to be explained to your teammates, your colleagues, or your friends? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's I think it's difficult, and and part of the reason why it gets exhausting is we have to relive memories of different things that have happened to us personally, that have happened to our brothers, to our fathers, to you know, in, in people in the black and brown community. So I think, yeah, it's it is really difficult to have those conversations, and you know, but at the same time, you know people don't know what they don't know. And I'm a big believer when you know better, you do better. And so, um, you know, even if it's not me sharing my own personal experience or whatever the case might be, like giving, you know, one of the big things that came out this summer too, is just like giving people resources to like understand and to learn more about black culture and black history and, and, um, microaggressions and things like that. Like, I, and I, I think if, if people aren't taught certain things, like, um, you know, you sh- really shouldn't be touching black hair. You know, if somebody's hair on your team looks different than you, you, it's not, it's not a toy, you know, that's somebody's hair. So just even little things that I think sometimes people do innocently and don't really understand like the, the bigger implication behind it. You know, when you're, when you're able to have, uh, to sit back and have conversations, um, you know, with your teammates or with your staff or whatever the case might be, I think some, some of the stuff that goes on, there's no malicious intent behind it. But like I said, if you don't know any better, you don't know. So I do think, I do think to some extent, we do have a little bit of a responsibility to, to, to let people know. But I think at the same time, people have to understand that it's exhausting and it's not something that we can do every day of our lives all the time or or whatever the case might be. But like, um, but you know, there has to be a balance and I'm not even sure what that balance is, but, um, there definitely needs to be a balance. I would Uh, agree. 
Um, I mean, it, it's been exhausting. And I think there are two things that I would add. Um, one is that, and I would imagine that um, athletes or people in, uh, in sports, uh, coaches, athletes probably get this as well, but it was exhausting and um, something that I had to really uh, work not to get too upset about to be offered all of these opportunities to write about the black experience from places that um, prior to um, I felt limited um, what I could write or even if I was able to contribute at all. Um, So those are things that as a professional, I have to, deal with. Um, and then as a person of color, as a black Latina, I have to deal with. Um, and then even the way I choose to identify, I, I am very, um, intentional with how I identify myself and being black and being Latina, my identity and how, and, and where I sit in that, um, there's explaining that I sometimes have to do to either one of those communities um, to feel fully accepted as myself, but also to challenge my communities and and the the communities that I come from, including regionally to enter the conversation and be thoughtful about what is important to express and what is important to learn. And I, I think that is important to uplift as well. Like all of us have learning to do. All of us have opportunities at time to experience privilege and can utilize that privilege, whether we know, whether we intend to or not to um, perpetuate systems of, of oppression. And those conversations are hard because when you feel that you've been oppressed to own up to how you may perpetuate systems is not easy work but it's important and necessary work. So that's what I would add as far as the fatigue that has come from the last several months. So one of the big changes I think we've all noticed over the last several months is that athletes in particular, but sports people across the board have really decided to use their platforms to spread messages of support for the Black Lives Matter movement. And we've, in NWSL circles, talked a lot about how the NWSL was the first league to come back during the pandemic in North America and what kind of feat that was, you know, in terms of coronavirus-related challenges. But that also brought this, for the first time, an avenue for athletes in this particular, in this year to really express those messages of support for the black lives matter movement and athletes across the world have been continuing to do that. So I'll start again with you, Jasmine, what has it been like to be more open in that, uh, to be more open in that way where you're wearing shirts, a shirt that you designed, right? And really trying to spread that message on the field and not just off it. Yeah, I I want to preface my answer by saying that I I think most of us have been speaking out. You know, I think that as Kia and Erica said earlier, you know, this this isn't new. It's just being 
received uh, at a greater rate than it was before. I think for me personally, um, you know, I've always been advocating for, for the black community and given, you know, things with the pandemic and us being the first league back that enabled my platform to just be seen now, whereas earlier it wasn't. Um, and so I think with that, most of us felt that now was a time to be more bold and loud about what we're seeing while we're being about what we're saying while we're being seen um, and doing things that would last beyond the, the tournament in Utah, because, you know, at the time we didn't know if we were going to be playing past July. Um, so that's where I think incorporating the t-shirts and, um, you know, I had worn a headband and some other players had specialty cleats. I think that's where kind of those, uh, ideals and you know other forms of protest came into play because we finally got the spotlight you know I mean something that really I think was interesting to hear from my perspective is everybody was talking about Colin Kaepernick four years ago but few people were talking about what the NBA WNBA players were doing back then before Colin Kaepernick took a knee you know why is that we can all guess, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is that uh, it wasn't until each of us went into our perspective bubbles that, you know, our voices were amplified and then our messages were being heard. So I think most of what you're seeing was been building and brewing and just like circumstances enabled our platforms all to be elevated at the same time. Yeah. You make a great point about the WNBA and Erica, you're someone who obviously pays a lot of attention to that. You covered the WNBA and uh, and WSL, and like Jasmine said, these aren't. This isn't the first time anybody's put in these efforts. But I think the WNBA has. I, they probably should have held this reputation before, but I think now, especially, hold this reputation as a league where the players really are happy to advocate for different types of equality. And so I'm curious to see from your standpoint, what has it been like covering the WNBA and the NWSL and just from completely a a perspective of somebody in the media, just watching sports conversations change from just who's good and who's bad at playing sports to what athletes bring to the table outside of just being people who play sports. Right. Um, a few things. And I, I do think it's important to echo what, what Jasmine um, started her last comments with is that, you know, this isn't new. And um, I, I wonder sometimes if my perspective is a little bit different because, um, you know, these are conversations that I enjoyed having with athletes um, since I can remember. Um, so the, the conversation has always been there, but I even wrote this down, you know, um, Jasmine said to be bold with what we were saying while we were being seen. And that's, that's the real difference. And um, it goes back to some of what all of us have said is that it's a little bit uncomfortable uh, to think that for whatever reason, this particular moment seemed to catapult the conversation, but you make do with what you have. Um, but I think a lot of 
black athletes, particularly black and brown women, have been prepared for these conversations because they've been having them. So to Jasmine's point about the WNBA, what I saw as different for the WNBA in 2020 was one, the platform um, and the national coverage, which we have all seen uh, across women's sports. Um, you know, the viewership has gone up because they've had more national games. Um, and that does relate to this conversation because um, whether you love it or hate it, um, more people were being plugged in and were hip to what WNBA players were saying. But if we uh, rewind, to pre-Colin Kaepernick also, as Jasmine mentioned, this came from WNBA players, the platform that they were able to enjoy and the, the unification and the organization that it took to execute that plan came back in 2016, um, not just when the Minnesota Lynx wore shirts after the Dallas Five, Philando Castile, and Alton Sterling were shot and killed, um, but Specifically, it became a league-wide issue because at the time, the WNBA fined the players because their message for justice was in contrast with the contract that they had for their warm-up gear. Saying that in 2020 is outrageous. Saying it in 2016, it was, well, you, you got to do what your CBA says. You have to do what your contract says. If you're supposed to wear an Adidas shirt and you're wearing a Nike shirt, it doesn't matter what the shirt says, you're going to get fined. But the thing that was interesting is that not only were these athletes fined uh, within their CBA, but the fines were exponentially higher than normal. So not only what that told me is that not only was there an issue at the time with not wearing what was uh, specified as warm-up uniform, but it was also the message and the heat that the message brought to the team and to the league. And what the WNBA players did is they took all of the heat. <laughs> they took the fines, they took the heat, and they continued with the message. And had they not done that, I don't know that 2020 from a sports perspective would look the way it did in the WNBA. And if the WNBA hadn't continually over time, kept pushing the envelope again to prepare for a 2020. I'm not sure that even athletes that personally have um, utilized their platform would have been given um, given even an amplified platform, nor, if we're being quite honest, had the courage to step out on a limb because the WNBA already took those lashes. Venus and Serena Williams already took those lashes. And those are important things to bring into the conversation um, when talking about athlete activism. Um, and you could go back even further, 68 Olympics, et cetera, um, because they're athletes that over time have, have really put their career and their reputation on the line in order for something like 2020 to happen. Kia, um, I'm interested in your perspective as someone who has now jumped from being an athlete to being a coach. Uh, obviously, we're spending a lot of time talking about how athletes have really led the charge. But for you as a coach now, how does how does watching this unfold then maybe impact the way you coach your players, if it does at all? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think one of the biggest things is that, that I want to convey is like, I was, I was born black. I was not born a soccer player. So like 
these conversations and everything that's going on, I, I had conversations about race before I had conversations about, you know, playing professional soccer or careers or jobs or things like that. So um, I think that like, you know, what we were talking earlier about people being prepared to have these conversations. It's because we were born having these conversations with our parents, with, you know, our, our families, extended family, friends, whatever the case might be. So for me, you know, and you ask like, how, how has it been being a coach, you know, trans transitioning from a player to a coach and how is it different? For me, it's not different. Uh, my team looks a lot different than when I inherited them four years ago. Um, you know, I think my team is a lot more diverse and, and, and a lot of people might look at that and say, oh, he is actively going out to find diversity. And that's fine if people feel like that, but look at it the other way. I think there's a lot of young women out there who maybe have never played for a woman, never played for a woman of color and want to play for somebody that does look like them and can identify with what the struggles might be being at a predominantly white institution and, and understanding that them coming to play for me, you know, there's certain things that I'm going to think about or know, or, you know, check up on them about that, you know, you're, you're in general coaches aren't going to do, but because I've walked that line, I've walked those shoes. I know what, what my role has to be specifically with those players um, to help them feel supported, to help them feel included um, so, you know, for me, I don't think anything's really changed. I think that this has just been who I am because again, I was born black. I was born into this. So I understand what the black experience is like. Um, I'm just happy that more people are, are joining the conversation now and trying to understand. That brings me to something that I've thought about a lot over this time about how, women's soccer especially has been a space that isn't particularly diverse. Um, I think the pl uh, body of I mean, the pool of players now is more diverse than it used to be, but still coaches and even further up the chain with general managers and owners, that isn't such a diverse pool of people. And it reminds me of what you were saying, Erica, about how the WNBA players were fined back in 2016. Do you feel that? I mean, I think the obvious answer to some of this is that the groups of people that are leading teams need to be more diverse. But do you think at least in the meantime, over the last six months, the people that are in charge have been more receptive and are putting in some of the work or is that just something that's a case-by-case -case basis? I think it's definitely case-by-case -case. and not just case-by-case -case, um, given how any individual leader personally identifies. But I think, it, again, it goes back to how one can um, intentionally or not kind of perpetuate systems of power. And if a person in a leadership position um, doesn't feel that they can, um, within the power that they are given, um, have certain conversations, then it's going to stall the progress of, of any prog of, of any, uh, growth, I should say. It's going to stall the progress and, and uh, stall the growth because the culture isn't there. And I think what's important to remember is that there are some athletes, coaches, journalists, whatever, executives that are willing to have these conversations, that do have these conversations, 
in private meetings, uh, in the media, and at home. But if they're the only one, then that is an easy voice to silence. You just mute them or you cast them as someone, this is only one person saying that this is a challenge and this is a problem. But the organizations that take it upon themselves to have multiple people um, and and even better, uh, that really take a organizational approach to the work are going to be more successful because neither Kia nor Jasmine nor myself can speak for anyone else's experience except our own. And so in that way, even though our very real experience, we, we are speaking on our very real experiences, they are can be easily dismissed as anecdotal. But if you bring in academics, if you bring in um, different people who do this professionally and you bring your organization up to snuff about why these conversations continue to exist and what systems are in place and, and how an organization can tackle those systems within their culture. That's how things change. So, I mean, I don't even know if I answered your question, but I think it's important to kind of step back from the individual and really understand that any progress it might be sparked by something that one person or one collective group um, uh, does or says, but if we're going to see change and if the grandiose idea of eradicating racism and um, is, is going, if, if you're going to be and, and do that in earnest, then you have to change culture. And some of that obviously includes hiring, but it's also, um, you know, there are people's, you have to change how people think and, and, and how they um, show up to conversations about race. And Kia, you, I mean, I think one of the things that we talk about in women's soccer circles a lot is that the coach, the pool of coaches that actually have jobs in women's soccer is a pretty homogenous group, right? There is only one female coach or head coach in the NWSL, uh, Amy LaPelvet is there on an interim basis. So if we want to bring it up to two, that's fine, but that's two out of 10. None of them are women of color. For you, what has it been like navigating that space as a black woman? Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's funny because this has been my experience. I mean, most of the teams that I've played on growing up, I was the only I was the only woman of color on the team uh, throughout much of my college career. I was, you know, the only one, if not one of few, on my team. Um, and now, even in collegiate coaching for Division One coaches, I believe there's only four or five uh, women of color in 330. And this is coaching women's sports. 330 teams, Division One teams. There's only four of us. Uh, you know, you, you referenced the NWSL, um, you know, I think Nikki Washington was just recently hired. She's the only, she's the first and only woman of color, I think, I think in history work. I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but you know, the fact that, the fact that it's, it made such news that she, you know, is now an assistant for a professional team obviously shows that it's, 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 it hasn't been the norm. So, 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, we, we talk a lot about see it to be it. So, you know, I'm hopeful that, um, me being in the position that, that I'm in, you know, um, coaching young women in college, you know, hopefully, um, that, that allows more, more women in general and, and women of color to see this as, as a potential career path for them. Um, but I think when you don't see it, especially, um, in C-level positions in, in companies as GMs, um, you know, it's tough to aspire to something you can't see. And I think that's why even, you know, not, not, not to bring politics into anything, but regardless of any political affiliation to see Kamala Harris as our vice president, that's really meaningful and powerful for all, all women and women of color to, to have somebody in, um, probably the, the, the second most powerful position in this country, that, that alone, like, gives me inspiration and motivation. And I don't even know her, you know, but just to see her in that position, that, you know, gives me motivation and aspirations to, to do more. And so I think that's, you know, that's one person. And I think so the more that we can kind of, um, you, you know, lend a hand or extend the bridge to, to help get more women, you know, in the game, in C-level positions, in, you know, GM roles, whatever the case might be, you know, I think, I think that's, that's the best thing that could happen for, you know, for probably for any organization. I think, I think diversity of, of, of thought is probably the best thing you can do to enhance your organization. And, and right now we just don't have it. And Jasmine, what is it like from a player's point of view to see that, I mean, at the very least, that the group of leaders at a team does not actually necessarily represent the group of players at that team? Yeah, I think, honestly, Kia is right in in the fact that, you know, diversity is essential for the success of an organization. And if you don't have the personnel that can relate to each and every one of your players on the field, how are you going to possibly get the best out of them? You know? Um, And I think, unfortunately, the women of color in this league, we found a way to operate at, at our best selves without that, you know, but imagine how much more, um, we could be, I guess is the best way to phrase it. Um, if we had coaches and GM and, and staff, um, who, who relate to us and could kind of, I guess, you know, understand and, um, build the bridges, you know, that, that you would like as far as communication and, and understanding and value between the players and, and the front staff. I mean, I hope that, you know, this has been eye-opening and that teams and organizations are taking that into consideration, but only time will tell really and if it goes that way in the future and and how much um, greater the league becomes because of it. That does open me up to this very, very open-ended question that any of you can start with, but where do you think might be some room for improve. Where do you think room for improvement ex- uh, should be? I guess a priority for 
leaders in women's soccer? Where do you think like the first areas of improvement should be? Because clearly if it's a systemic issue, there are a lot of things to tackle, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, like you said, I think it's, that's a a long winded answer and you could probably go on, you know, for, for days about it. But I think one of the biggest things is just um, there's, there's a lot of barriers to entry to even get to that point. And I think it starts at a grassroots level within the game of soccer specifically. You know, I look at, I look at soccer nowadays, there is no way. And I'm somebody, I mean, I played at the highest, I played in, I, I, played obviously in the WPS, the NWSL. I played for a team over in Champions League, you know, had a great college career. Um, you know, there's no way I would be able to afford what some of these kids are paying for, for uh, where these families are paying for soccer nowadays. You know, some, some teams to play on them are anywhere between three grand to 10 grand a year. And I know that even for me growing up, you know, paying a thousand dollars for a a year was that was a stretch for my family you know flying flying down to Florida like that was that was hard now people are being asked to fly out to San Diego twice a year or with a month's notice and and things like that and so I think that even from like a younger or younger age you're going to see more attrition of, of of players who can't simply can't afford to do that and that doesn't necessarily mean that they they don't have the talent or the skill or the work ethic or whatever the case might be, but they don't have the money to, to really, you know, if you really, really want to make it at the highest level, but, you know, you have to play for some of the premier clubs and, and don't get me wrong. There's, there's other players who make it other ways, but those people are few and far between in comparison to how many pe- how many talented individuals there are out there. You know, same thing with, you know, if you're working up the ladder, same thing with, with coaches licenses, you know, those are expensive getting, um, you know, and so they'll tell you, you can't work with the national team staff. If you don't have this, you can't work with the, in the, in the NWSL, if you don't have this license it, and those licenses can sometimes cost up to 10 grand, you know? So I, I did, I think from just, just from looking at the barriers of entry and how many of them have financial implications, inevitably you're you're streamlining things towards one demographic you know just just by that alone um and and the other thing i think is i think people in in those hiring positions need to do a better job of extending their network so if the people you're calling for a job all all look like you that that's you know that in in your in your white male per se you need to diversify your group. And like, so a lot of people might, you know, I've had people reach out to me and, and I don't mind this. They'll call me and say, Hey, Kia, do you know, I'm, I'm looking for, you know, a young black woman for, to, to, as an assistant coach for my team. I think it's really important to have diversity on my staff and, and um, you know, do you know of anybody? Because like my network is definitely going to look different than somebody else's network. And I'm, I'm okay with, you know, them asking me those questions. So it's, I I think if you don't have the access or the, or, you know, maybe you just don't know like who's out there, but go find them. You know, if you're fishing in the same pond all the time, you're going to get the same fish. If you fish in different ponds, that's how you're going to get diversity. And that's, and that to me, that's how you're going to get better.
I think I'd just add to that coming from specifically speaking to media members and journalists is we have to listen. <laughs> I mean, um, we all have said multiple times over that individually and, and certainly people from uh, communities of color have talked about these issues and, um, you know, it, it can feel it's not the greatest feeling when, you know, the world is on fire and you're the one black person that people know for you to always kind of have to be on about these issues and uh, presumably only found uh, in crisis. Um, that's, that's tough. That's really tough when, uh, to Kia's point, if, if you expand the network, um, th there's more opportunity to get the story right over time than just, you know, when you need that, that hit. Um, but we have to listen to um, people telling us what about the system isn't working and, and, and truly listen when they tell us about the system. Uh, everyone can share a personal story. I don't think it's fair to always ask people to recount some of the most traumatic um, or, you know, anger inducing moments of their life just to prove that racism in this case exists. Um, because first of all, we've already done that, but that's not how you solve racism. You solve it by uh, engaging other people in conversations. Um, but journalists, media members, I think we need to do a better job listening and being thoughtful with how we present stories um, when we do have opportunities for people to speak openly and honestly about racism. And if you're only talking to black players or black coaches, um, about racism. I mean, we like people who are are victims of oppression and racism most often did not create the racism that they're experiencing. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, your average 30 something white person on the street did either. But my point is that uh, this is this is something that has to be tackled from multiple angles. Uh, so as much as we need to listen and amplify black voices, we also need to engage and bring in other voices to the conversation as well, because it's those pockets um, that aren't thinking about what the three of us think about every day. Uh, those are the, the minds um, and the, the habits uh, that have to change. Um, and I guess that actually answers one of the questions that I was going to ask all of you, but if you want to add anything to it, I hope a lot of people listening to this, I know I can say that for myself, but I do hope that for a lot of people listening to this want to be allies to black people and to, and I hope they're all pretty supportive of the black lives matter movement. So if there's something that you think allies maybe at this point haven't received a message on or, well, or maybe just haven't picked up the message because I, I know that uh, so many people have been making these points, but people haven't been receiving them. If there's something else that maybe people listening to this should know about how to be supportive of their black colleagues and friends what could that be? What else anyway? I mean, you've obviously all added so much already. I, th I think that like, if this, um, 
you know, if this Black Lives Matter movement was up to Black people, we would have solved this already hundreds of years ago, you know, decades ago. I think the the biggest thing that I think we need our white allies, allies to know is we need you. Like we need your help, we need your support, we need we need you to speak up when you hear um, something that that's um, you know racist a racist remark. We need you to speak up when you know you're looking at your your policies or your hiring procedures or whatever the case might be, and you see something like ah I don't know if that's I don't I don't think that that's gonna um, you know, I think that's going to be a barrier entry, or I think that that's not going to apply to all the constituents that might uh, apply for this job, or I think we're, um, you know, forgetting the fact that, you know, we, we need to, um, you know, open things up to this community, or whatever the case might be. I just think that we need, you know, the same way how with, with women's rights, we need men as allies, like for, for Black rights, and for us to really come forward with this, you know, anti-racism um, movement, we, we need white people as, you know, to, to see those injustices too, and not just see them, but to speak up on them. And so I think that's, that would be one of my biggest messages is that, that, you know, we don't look at you as, um, like, we don't hate you, or we don't look at you as like, you, you did this to me, or you caused this. But I, I do think that, you know, uh, acknowledging white privilege is important and I don't think you know the same way I was born black and other people are born white like I think I you know you can't control that but I think you can have a level of understanding of what that means for me and alternatively what that means for you and then and then you know kind of like what um, Erica was saying earlier is just understanding like what maybe what your privilege is and and how you can help utilize it to, to advocate for um for your black friends. All right. Well, I think that's about all I have. So just one more time, I'd like to thank you all a lot for taking the time out and speaking to me and giving other people something to listen to as well. Um, That is a wrap for this special edition of the Equalizer podcast. I'd like to thank everybody else for listening And don't forget to rate and subscribe and check in next week.